Zach, you're late. Ah, sorry, Scott. There was a disturbance. Always a disturbance with you. Come on, look. Last year, we did 120 daily episodes about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man one minute at a time. This year, we have to cover the sequel. If we don't, not only are we defaulting on our podcast guarantee, but we'll lose the listeners forever. Look, you're my only hope. You need to record 125 daily episodes in six and one quarter months, or our show is canceled. All 125 minutes of Spider-Man 2? Including the time when Peter fights with a janitor's closet? Yes! What about that time Aunt May threw him a birthday party and only two people showed up? That too. Or when that guy from that really old movie, Army of Darkness, keeps him from seeing Mary Jane's play? Obviously. Even the time that Peter loses his powers and has to share an elevator with E! Entertainment's own Hal Sparks? We're covering every single minute of Spider-Man 2, from pizza time to train-related crimes and everything in between, on Season 2 of Spider-Man Minute. So if people want to listen, they should just go to DuelingGenre.com or wherever they get their podcasts, right? Right. Go! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week I am joined by returning guest Scott Corelli to discuss Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker from the graphic novel Spider-Man Blue. Welcome, Scott. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on again. So uh, recently we had you on to talk about Doctor Who, and you mentioned uh, your very long-running Doctor Who podcast. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is there anything you want to tell us about Spider-Man and your relationship with Uh Spider-Man? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I do uh, I do a Spider-Man podcast called Spider-Man Minute, where we talk about the Spider-Man movies one minute at a time. Uh, so uh, big, big, big Spider-Man fan uh, for as long as I can remember. I literally can't remember uh, my life, my existence without Spider-Man being uh, a part of it. So uh, big, big Spider-Man. <laughs> just fan one of those sure. wallpaper characters where like it's just part of your life. Like you, it's the tapestry that is is in the background of everything for you, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I can't remember my first Spider-Man experience either. It's just Spider-Man is there. And uh, like you, I'm a big fan. And uh, I think this graphic novel targets Spider-Man fans uh, in, in the emotional spots. It's going <laughs> to just... Oh, yeah. I, I think it's an interesting text. And we'll get into this a little bit more. But I think you do need some context, not just for who Spider-Man is in terms of the pop culture idea of always Peter Parker. You need to know some of the character's history from the comics to really understand what this graphic novel is doing. But if you have that, all your emotions are going to be uh, hit pretty, pretty uh, exactly how they want. They want them to be hit in this in this graphic novel. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, uh if if you are unaware, Spider-Man Blue is a graphic novel that was written by Jeff Loeb and illustrated by Tim Sale and published originally as as issues, like a miniseries, not as a graphic novel, but as, as um, a miniseries of comic books between July 2002 and April 2003. And it has six issues, so I'm guessing it was released about bi-monthly uh, when it was coming out, which gives you a lot of time for the for the story to breathe <laughs> as, you're, as you're waiting for the next one. It tells the story of Peter, oh, yeah. of Peter Parker reminiscing about his relationship with Gwen Stacy, um, who is... Uh, well, I, I guess maybe we should get into all the context of of the comic book story. Uh, is Spider Man as a character has been around since nineteen sixty five three nineteen sixty three, I think. Uh, uh, early sixties, sixty two. Okay, early sixties. Um, and in and he's had monthly adventures that have gone on since then. Uh, and in those, one of his first girlfriends was Gwen Stacy. Um, and for a lot of our pop culture ideas of Spider-Man, the way it gets presented in movies, it's Mary Jane is, you know, the, the Spider-Man love interest. You know, that's the Superman Lois Lane dynamic. It's Spider-Man and Mary Jane. Mary Jane did get introduced to later on in the series. Gwen Stacy was the first girlfriend who was killed by the supervillain Green Goblin. And that I, I think audiences maybe are more aware of that after the amazing Spider-Man couple films with Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, because she mm-hmm. played Gwen Stacy. And, um, 
and died in the second one. And also, uh, Gwen Stacy is a little more prominent after Into the Spider-Verse because uh, the, the Spider-Gwen or uh, Spider-Woman character in there is, is Gwen Stacy. And so her, I, I think her pop culture uh, stock has risen <laughs> in, the, in, oh, yeah. the, in the last decade. Uh, but in like the 90s and 2000s, I think anyone who knew of Spider-Man more casually assumed it was just Spider-Man Mary Jane. Uh, but but now people are much more aware of Gwen Stacy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is a retelling of events from Spider-Man's past. And and so it was published in 2002 and 2003. But it really is all about the context of some certain beats in, Sp- in Peter Parker's life. Uh, so the, the comic book history of the character is pretty important. Um, Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb have collabor- collaborated on several other Marvel miniseries, all with a color theme and all that do similar things of like digging into the comic book history of these characters. So they also have done Daredevil Yellow hulk gray and captain america white Mm -hmm. and um they as uh uh, collaborators also did one of my favorite batman stories maybe my favorite batman story though it's 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 a top batman story for me batman the long halloween Mm -hmm. um each of these um each of these color books it should be uh i guess worth pointing out that um they don't they don't just uh deal with events from their past they specifically are about the main character discussing a loss um, so, mm-hmm. uh, a character that they lost. So, you know, Captain America white is about Bucky, um, about, uh, Captain America sort of reminiscing about losing Bu- Bucky. Uh, Hulk gray is about, uh, Bruce Banner, um, looking back at, uh, Betty and how he lost her because in the nineties, she died of cancer that he accidentally gave her, um, much like uh, Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen and, and his ex. Um, very similar situation. And then uh, Daredevil Yellow is about Karen Page and uh, a character that, uh, that Matt uh, Murdock also uh, lost in, uh, uh, I think, uh, Bullseye murdered her. Um, so Right. I think that one also digs into his father a bit. Too. Yeah, it did. It went that's, into his father a little bit too. But, 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 no, but, but the main loss that is dealing with is, is uh, Karen. Yeah, yeah. So it is about like things that these heroes have lost each one of these uh, color books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned like context is really important. So at this point, I think amazing Spider-Man is it's numbers is somewhere in the 700, uh, you know, like issue number 700, whatever is, is what's coming out now. Uh, this mini series is kind of set uh, in the world of uh, issues number 40 through 48 from 1966 and 1967. So, mm-hmm definitely digging into the past of Spider-Man. Um, and it's not just retelling those, like it's, it's doing, uh, you know, uh, like a new interpretation of the plot beats that happened uh, within those issues. However, it's also like as readers, you're, you're not going to have the same experience reading this. If you also don't know about the death of Gwen Stacy, which was published in June of 1973 with Spider-Man amazing Spider-Man number 121. So there's, like a few different frames that I think a reader needs to go in with. Um, I love this story, but I don't think it's one that you could hand to a casual person who liked the Spider-Man movies and said, you're going to love this, <laughs> you know, this graphic novel. Uh, it is written. I, I, I think we mentioned this a little bit with Dr. Who this is, I, I don't think it's gatekeepery and uh, saying you only true Spider-Man fans will love this, but it's definitely written with people who have a lot of that context in mind as the audience. I would say that is uh, that is very true. However, uh, this was this was a story that I read very early on in my Spider-Man comics uh, readership. Um, so, like, this was a very early thing. It was like I think you know two of my first ones when I really started going to like the comic shop like every week. Um, you know, I wanted mm-hmm. Spider-Man books, and I was given by the by the guy behind the counter. I was given this and Ultimate Spider-Man Volume One, and uh, I, this blew my mind because I'd never heard of Gwen Stacy before. When oh okay, when, well that's really interesting. Yeah, when I when I maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it it completely blew my mind when I when I read this, and what it did for me was that yes there was a lot of things that i didn't know about and it 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 like kind of spurred me to go find those things because i loved this so much um you know now that i'm thinking about it i i think it definitely is written with that audience in mind but i'm thinking about like the first comic books i picked up mm -hmm. it was 
the first comic book I picked up was part three of a trilogy of X-Men comic books that like, <laughs> you know, they were telling a three part story. I got the third part and this was 1990s X-Men that was so steeped in continuity mm-hmm. and everything. And I just picked it up and I read it. I was like, I want to know everything about all of these characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't a turnoff, even though I certainly as um, I think an eight year old, uh, picking up my very first comic book that I ever picked up was not the target audience right. for that one. It still resonated with me and hooked me. So I, I think we could safely say this is targeting a certain kind of reader, mm-hmm. but maybe uh, it, it could appeal to beyond. Yeah, that yeah. I think audience. I think you can enjoy this knowing uh, like basically just the bare bones minimum about Spider Man as a character, and I think you can enjoy this great. Mm-hmm. Like just the the stuff that you learn from pop culture osmosis. I think you can enjoy this story as is, but then the more you become you you read that background and you learn more about the character and the history of the character, the next time you read this, it will blow your mind all over again because like I remember reading this for the first time after reading the first 150 issues of Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, and then reading this and being like, oh, my God, these are like specific issues of Amazing Spider-Man. What in the <laughs> world? Like it freaked me out um, and because that was something that I obviously had no context for uh, the first time I read it. So I think it works on both levels. Perfect. Yeah, oh, I, I like that you brought that different perspective because I, I definitely first read this after I was pretty steep. I hadn't read those original issues, but I. I remember like when I got into comics, like reading the encyclopedia entries or reading the backs of trading cards to find out all these stories that I'd missed. And I picked up a lot um, of that. And somehow uh, I think every time I go to reread this, I've definitely read it four or five times, maybe, maybe even more. I think every time I go, I'm expecting to have the death of Gwen Stacy be a part of it. And it never is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And and so in some ways, like my, my expectations actually get colored by, you know, um, (laughs) my familiarity with the Spider-Man mythos in a way that doesn't get paid (laughs) off in the end of this, this graphic novel. Though I still love the graphic novel. I'm saying it needed the death of Gwen Stacy. It's just, I get different expectations heading in. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, before we move on to a summary, we would like to thank you listeners for joining us and downloading this episode. And we especially like to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters at Patreon at any level receive access to our special monthly quick cast when we talk about the new media that we have consumed and also address the uh, fantasy box office game that we have going for 2019. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now on to the spoiler discussion of Spider-Man Blue. Uh, this, as I said, was a six-issue miniseries, book one. Uh, they, they're all called books, um, even though like these were maybe 25-page comic books. Uh, but the, on the title page, it says, Book One, My Funny Valentine. We have a voiceover narration in caption boxes uh, of Peter speaking, obviously, into a tape recorder. And he reveals that it's Valentine's Day, but he doesn't want to be anyone's Valentine's. He just wants to talk to Gwen. Accompanying the voiceover, we see Spider-Man swinging on webs and leaving a rose on a bridge top, which Spider-Man fans know is the place where Gwen Stacy was killed by the Green Goblin. We cut to a flashback of Spider-Man fighting the Green Goblin. Green Goblin has captured Spider-Man and removed his mask, and he knows that it's Peter Parker. Spider-Man and Green Goblin fight, and eventually, in an explosion, the Green Goblin is knocked out. Spider-Man pulls off the Green Goblin's mask, because fair is fair, and he sees that it is the face of Norman Osborn, his friend's father. Uh, But when Norman wakes up, he doesn't know why he's there or who the Green Goblin is. He's just confused about what's happening. So Spider-Man takes Norman Osborn out and leaves him with a fireman saying that Norman Osborn is Norman Osborn is a hero who just killed the Green Goblin. Peter visits his friend Harry in the hospital where Harry is looking over his father. Uh, and Harry says his dad can't remember what happened and is going to need a lot of time to recuperate. Harry thanks Peter for coming by. Just as Peter is leaving the hospital, Flash Thompson, uh, who is kind of like the high school bully uh, that was always picking on Peter Parker, and Gwen Stacy come in along with a couple other friends of Harry's. Peter is leaving, but he looks back and sees Gwen looking right at him. Uh, at the end of the the issue, Peter's debating about buying a motorcycle uh, and he sees Gwen and Harry and that group of friends walk by and he decides, I need to get this motorcycle. So he buys it and he rides up and asks if anyone wants a ride on the motorcycle and Gwen says yes. Book two is Let's Fall in Love. Peter flirts with Gwen Stacy a bit in a science lab, which gets, you know, a science class, and that gets Flash angry. Uh, the big villain that he fights in this episode is the Rhino. Uh, however, Spider-Man, with the help of something that Gwen said in that science, science class that inspired some thinking on Peter's part, 
And then he, he takes that uh, thought to scientist Kurt Connors uh, to help create a solvent that is going to remove the rhino's super tough hide that is making it difficult for Spider-Man to fight him. Spider-Man uh, sprays him with that. Uh, his, his Basically, once this hide is off of him, he's a normal man. He's no longer a supervillain. And Spider-Man is able to capture the rhino. That night, Peter Parker is rushing out to a study session with Gwen, but Aunt May hopes he'll meet someone she's been trying to introduce him to. He opens the door, and there stands Mary Jane Watson. Book number three, Anything Goes. Harry, Flash, Gwen, and the gang are at a restaurant when Mary Jane shows up. The guys are a bit gaga over her. And then Peter shows up and apologizes for being late, and Mary Jane hangs on to him, much to the confusion of Flash Thompson. Uh, but Gwen tells Flash, wake up. You don't know what you uh, know about Peter Parker couldn't fill a thimble. Peter sees a news report that the lizard is attacking the city. Peter finds an excuse, uh, tries to find an excuse to leave. And MJ says, wouldn't this be a great photo op? You have to go. So she kind of gives him the excuse. Uh, and then she says, I'm coming along. And she drags Peter out of the restaurant. At the scene of the lizard attack, the police won't let anyone pass um, the, the yellow tape they have set up. But MJ distracts the cops so that Peter can sneak in to take pictures, which of course means he sneaks in and changes into his Spider-Man costume. He's able to fight the lizard and uh, actually turn him back into Kurt Connors because the lizard uh, is that helpful scientist who helped him in the last uh, issue, but he transforms into this mindless beast. Uh, that night, Harry, who had been asking Peter to come share a very nice apartment with him, asks if Peter is going out with Mary Jane. Peter awkwardly says no, and Harry says that's great because Gwen has been giving you the eye, and Harry has been giving Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane the eye. So, uh, some love quadrangle is being developed here. Book number four, Autumn in New York. Peter decides that he is going to move into Harry's very nice apartment. Uh, at a prison, Adrian Toomes, who is the supervillain Vulture, has a heart attack. Uh, while calling for medics, another prisoner asks where he has hidden his soup. He says, kind of like, this is your moment to pass on the legacy of the Vulture. And Toomes tells him that it's hidden under the old mill bridge, which I always think is a little too vague when I get to this point. <laughs> You're in a New York penitentiary. <laughs> He's like, you know the old mill bridge? And the guy's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, there's, there's a supervillain suit hidden underneath it the prisoner escapes and finds the suit meanwhile harry is having a housewarming party with flash gwen and mary jane peter as spider-man is swinging back to join that party but then the vulture attacks and we get intricate pages of people dancing at the party and peter fighting the vulture and the issue ends with peter lying injured on a snow-covered rooftop book number five if i had you peter drags himself home but the party is over. He has a nasty cold. A figure from the shadows is looking at Spider-Man's tracks in the snows. That's uh, in the snow. That same figure visits Tombs in the hospital and says that Tombs was poisoned by the other prisoner so that he'd reveal where the suit was. And then this mysterious figure gives Tombs an antidote to that poison. Mary Jane shows up uh, to bring Peter some chicken soup. Then Gwen Stacy shows up to read to Peter while he rests. Oh, pre-internet and pre-streaming video days. <laughs> when you were homesick, what are you going to do? <laughs> Have someone come read Huckleberry Finn to you. Uh, as these two beautiful women I guess are- we, Yeah, I guess we should specifically point out that this does take place in the 60s. Like yes. that's, uh, it's it's not a contemporary story. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's meant to be kind of an evergreen story that, that you could pick up and just say, this is part of Spider-Man, but there's a lot of markers that say, this is the 1960s right here. Um, right. So Mary Jane and Gwen are both there to help him recuperate, but then he sees out the window the vulture flying by and so he tells them i really need to sleep and grumbles about the vulture showing up right then so uh they leave and peter gets on his spider-man costume and he goes out and discovers not one but two vultures are fighting each other because adrian tombs uh, is healthy now put found another one of his costumes and is fighting this new imposter vulture in the midst of the battle a bag of money uh, uh falls to the ground it was uh, the first vulture the the um counterfeit vulture had stolen the money from a bank and that bag of money lands right in front of flash thompson when flash bends down to pick up the money a piece of a gargoyle that was broken off in the fight above him is falling down towards him and spider-man swings in and saves him spider-man tells flash to take that money back to the bank for him and flash promises to and then begins wondering what's the most heroic thing he's done in his life spider-man defeats both vultures and then goes back home that night harry at harry and peter's apartment flash announces that he is joining the army from outside the window that mysterious man who's been tracking spider-man watches and sniffs a bit of torn of torn spider-man costume 
Book number six, All of Me. That shadowy figure is watching video of Spider-Man defeating the scorpion, Dr. Octopus, the rhinoceros, the lizard, and the vulture. He says it's now time for his hunt to begin. It's Valentine's Day, and Harry and Peter are throwing a send-off party for Flash. Harry borrows some of Peter's cologne, since Gwen and MJ seem to like that scent. Uh, Gwen and Mary Jane arrive to the party, um, and they get glamour shot panels, and then a whole bunch of anonymous people arrive in another panel. <laughs> it's like full-page spread almost of, of Gwen Stacy arriving of Mary Jane arriving and then small panel with lots of people walking through. The door. <laughs> uh, uh, Harry gets a phone call from his dad and tells Peter that he's feeling that his dad, uh, Norman Osborne is feeling much better. And Norman even asked about Peter. Uh, that shadowy man is revealed to be Craven the hunter who crashes through a window. Flash tries to attack Craven the hunter, but is quickly taken down. Craven then grabs Harry and dumps back out the window. Peter runs and changes into a Spider-Man costume. And as Craven is threatening a very scared Harry, insisting that you are Spider-Man because you have his scent, uh, Spider-Man shows up. With a little help from Harry, Spider-Man defeats Craven. And that night, as Peter's changing back into his regular clothes in his room, Gwen knocks on the door and asks if Peter will be her Valentine. Then we cut to the present, where, which is really, like you said, the 1960s. But this is where the voiceover narration has been coming from, the uh, into the tape recorder. And Peter is sitting in his attic, talking to a cassette tape recorder. And I'm just going to read the final um, bit of dialogue that is included in the graphic novel. It says, uh, Gwen, for years I've tried to make sense of your death. Something, anything that I could call good that came after all that bad. And all the time I've been sitting up here talking to you, I remember something I don't think I've ever told anyone. The night of your funeral, MJ came to see me at the apartment. I was putting it mildly rude to her. I just wasn't up for that life is a party and MJ is the cake uh, thing. But something happened that night. I think now your death was MJ's wake up call that we weren't all going to live forever and the party was going to end. Gwen, I don't think Mary Jane Watson could have had a serious relationship with me until she realized how much we all lost with you gone. She would later become my wife. I had to learn to love again and she taught me how. And then Peter... Uh, MJ enters the attic and says, hi. And Peter says, MJ, how long have you been listening? And she says, long enough. Peter says, I'm sorry, MJ. I didn't mean for you to hear. She says, it's all right. I just came up to make sure you were okay. Peter says, yeah, I'm okay. And MJ says, will you do me a favor, Peter? Say hello for me and tell Gwen I miss her too. And then Peter says, that was MJ, Gwen. She says, hi, and I... I should get going. I guess when I try and sum up how I get, how I feel sometimes around this time of year, I feel blue. Not like I've been dipped in with the tidy bowl man, but like in music, in jazz, in feeling blue. And I long for a time when a girl I knew with an incredible smile and so much good in her heart made me think life can be great. The end. So that's Spider-Man Blue. Uh, ends on a bit of a downer. Well, like a, like a bittersweet. Bittersweet. <laughs> but but uh, a bittersweet, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, which again, for uh, like when I was uh, coming to Spider-Man comics, um, I only knew Spider-Man. Like I came to comics when Spider-Man and Mary Jane right. were married. Right. And so um, to, you can read a lot of this issue and think, Oh, this is just all in the 1960s. Even with the voiceover, you can assume this is, you know, 1960 stuff. And then to have that reveal that he is married to Mary Jane. He loves Mary Jane. He's not, you know, but he still has this burden that he carries um, from uh, the, the the night that Gwen Stacy died, but also how the night Gwen Stacy died shaped him mm-hmm. and Mary Jane, like it shaped everyone's life. You know, everyone who knew her. Uh, like you said, it's a, it's a bittersweet revelation there. At the end. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this sort of. Um uh like condensed version of this era of the of the series um and this event and the relationship of uh peter and uh, mj uh specifically mj is uh you know it's it is a little bit of a retcon i mean it it's sort of it feels like jeff loeb looking for um an arc where there wasn't really one, like kind of like trying to put all of that nonsense from the eighties and nineties, seventies, eighties and nineties into a, into a, a blender and like trying to find out like, okay, so like what, what if I had to look at this grand scale, like, like really step all the way back from all this nonsense and just look at Peter and Mary Jane, what happened? Well, Mary Jane was one way and now she's this way. And the thing that changed it was Gwen dying. Um, and how do I make that a poignant point in this book and uh, make it a, you know, it, it, it's, it's that thing where, you know, everyone reading this at this point 
would be very specifically on Mary Jane's side. Like, who is Gwen Stacy? Like, the whole point of this book, the reason that he wrote it was because people had largely forgotten about Gwen Stacy. And he wanted to show why Gwen Stacy was important, not just to Peter, not just to the history of Spider-Man, but specifically how she relates to his relationship with Mary Jane, who is his wife and the sort of iconic partner of Peter Parker. Like what makes Gwen Stacy important and why why does she relate in any way to uh, the woman that actually, you know, quote unquote matters, his wife, Mary Jane Watson, the one that's in the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I right. I just think it's a brilliant retcon. Um, and you know, it's not, it's not like a full blown retcon. It's not like he's changing anything. He's just changing meaning, you know, or giving meaning to, yeah, yeah. Meaning and focus. And it's just so brilliant. The idea that Mary Jane was the party girl that we knew her as like the one that was introduced early in, in, in comics. And then she became like the Mary Jane that we know as Peter's wife, which is she's kind of chill. You know, like she's very chill. She's very mature. Um, you know, she's very much that sort of stereotypical superhero girlfriend, which is like, oh, the girl without powers who knows better than than the dumb male hero. You know, like that's kind of like a, a stereotype at this point. Um, well, uh, you know, uh, the same stereotype that's in like a lot of family sitcoms and things like that. Um, but it's it's a stark difference between early Mary Jane and nineties, early two thousands, Mary Jane. Um, and making that make sense and using Gwen Stacy as the reason for that change is really just a brilliant move. And I mean, I, you know, this is, this is the Spider-Man story that I revisit over and over and over again, because Spider-Man is such a long, you know, standing serialized thing that like, it's very hard to like when somebody says like, Oh, what are the best Batman stories? Oh man, you can list off a bajillion, right? When somebody says, what are the best Spider-Man stories? It's really hard to do because in order to read any of the best Spider-Man stories, you have to have been reading the a hundred issues that came before that, you know? Um, just because of the best ones are like going to be tying all these threads together. Right. right? Exactly. And, and, exactly. Um, so it's very making connections that you didn't know were being laid right, out before. Right. Exactly. So it's, it's very difficult to suggest really good Spider-Man stories. Um, and Sp- Spider-Man stories that you can read over and over again without reading any of the context beforehand. And this is one of like three, I mean, really like one of like three Spider-Man stories that stand on its own without anything else. Um, and that is, uh, that is, that is, that is, that's very hard, uh, for me as, as a Spider-Man fan and someone who wants to get people into Spider-Man. It's very difficult because you have to just say, well, you should read this run. Okay. Well, how long is that run? Like 150 issues, you know, um, that's, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a tall glass of water. Um, that's like, that's too, that's, that's a little difficult to, uh, to, to swallow, you know? Um, and, uh, but this is six issues and it's a self-standing story. And like, luckily they are in the midst of publishing another, uh, another Spider-Man story that is in this fashion that I'm very excited about. And the first issue was really good. And I'm hoping that the rest of it is just as good. It's a Chip Zdarsky, um, story called uh, Spider-Man life story, uh, where he ages in real time. So each, each issue is like a decade of, of Spider-Man history. And, uh, but, but Peter is aging in real time. So, by the time you get to the 90s he's in his like 50s um and, and so it's like a really interesting way to tell that story of like yeah. what if this was what if he was like a real guy who was spider-man you know who had all the thousands of issues of adventures that have been published with spider-man right, comics right. at this point yeah exactly so <laughs> yeah Right, right. What was exactly, aging? Exactly. Right. Um, so it's it's really it's a it's a really interesting uh, interesting one. But like, that's so weird, right? That that you have this one, and then like twenty years later, you're getting another one. <laughs> um, it's it's crazy, but that's just because that's what Spider Man is like, right? Spider Man is a highly serialized book and a highly serialized character. That's just in his nature. That's like what the best Spider-Man stories are. But I mean, that's why his animated series are so popular and video games and things like that much more than his comics are. And it's, and it's specifically because those are more accessible than his comic. Um, 
you know, with the exception of this one. And I just, I, I think that this is just such a brilliant, poignant story. And it really taught me to learn and appreciate Gwen Stacy, you know, and, and which was a character that I, I knew that a thing happened to her, you know, and like I knew that that was a thing, but I didn't really know anything about it. You know, I knew enough about Gwen Stacy that when she showed up in ultimate Spider-Man, it was like, Oh, Oh, Oh wow. Okay. Gwen Stacy. All right. Where's this going to go? Um, and, and things like that. And when she, but she was never in the Fox cartoon, which is like another bit of like really big iconic Spider-Man uh, stuff, you know, like material that people really absorbed. And it was, she was not a character in that show. You know, it was just Felicia Hardy and Mary Jane. That's it. Um, those were the two love interests that he had in that show. Uh, and so Gwen Stacy was largely forgotten for a long time. So it's, it is really heartwarming to know that she has become, you know, spider Gwen. She has become, or, you know, the, the spider ghost or ghost spider or whatever they're calling her now in the, in the ghost comics, spider in the comics, but spider Gwen in the, or spider woman in the movie, I think is what she called herself. Right, in, right, in, right. In spider woman. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, so it's, it's, it's so great that she's that because, you know, she was always relegated to, Oh, that one time that, or the first time that a comic book ever fridged a female character. You know, right. like that well, was that, and, that historically, that's what she was known for is like, yeah, she was the creation she, of the, the fridging trope. She she's like a hinge in which comic history turned like her death is considered like the end of the Silver Age by a lot of comic book historians. Like yes. that moment is where you start to see the darkening that becomes the grinning, grim and gritty 90s. Like, like it starts to send right. comic book publishing down a different path than what it had been from Spider-Man, you know, the, the early Marvel period in the 1960s and the, the early DC superhero resurgence in the 1960s. That's considered the Silver Age. This is like like her death is, is a tone change for all of comics. And I know like there's the stories going around that. Um, so the way she dies is she's thrown off of the bridge by green goblin. Spider-Man shoots down a web to catch her. And um, the speed at which she's falling when he catches her with his spider web, it breaks her neck. And the, the story is that in the editorial office, that, cause that's gonna be one of the last panels um, is, is her falling and then it's going to be Spider-Man holding her body and with his fist up in the sky. And they had two versions that they drew one that put a crack by her neck and then said, when he's holding his fist up in the sky, he says, you killed her. And then one that doesn't have the crack by her neck. And it shows his fist up in the sky saying she's alive. And because Spider-Man's wearing a mask, you can't tell what emotion he's really feeling um, under that. And so they were debating until basically sending the issue to the publisher which way do we go on on this? And they, they killed Gwen Stacy, which like I said, it's, it's one of the um, sea changes for mm-hmm. the comic book publishing industry. And like you said, it has become, I, I think because it um, so many creators who read Spider-Man that then became comic creators, that's a story that resonated with them. Even as like the next generation of readers after that didn't know who Gwen Stacy was because reprints weren't a thing. You didn't have access to the right. old stories, the way that readers do now there's that generation of, readers who who that was a like a formative story for them they grew up and said well i'm gonna kill the hero's gr- uh, girlfriend that's gonna be a great motivator uh for story that's where we're gonna find some real emotion and it led to the trope that is called um fridging uh in which a female character's death is solely there for motivation of the male character right after, uh, you know thereafter. which if you are unfamiliar with the reasoning for that term um the reason that it's called fridging specifically which seems like a weird thing or like you're like oh it's like a euphemism for putting them on ice or something like that um and and the answer is uh, actually no um the the reason that it's called fridging is because uh there is a a green lantern character that was created in the 90s called kyle rayner and uh he was a brand new green lantern it was after how jordan sort of like went evil and 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 uh destroyed the green lantern Corps. and there was one green lantern uh ring left and they gave it to like this random artist guy and he became the one and only green lantern for a while in the 90s and in his introductory story where he had become the green lantern but he hadn't really become a hero yet he was struggling to figure out like where he stood in the world this whole thing and then uh this uh this this supervillain uh basically saw um this new green lantern and he was a supervillain that had fought uh, like the green lantern corps before and wanted to fight a green lantern and so to uh bring him to him to really like teach him that he is not a real hero and that this guy has all the power this supervillain he uh took Kyle Rayner's girlfriend and bent her in half 
and stuffed her in a refrigerator. And Kyle Rayner came home, opened his refrigerator, and found her body inside. Um, and that is why it's called Fritching. <laughs> well, and it, it's uh, a woman named Gail Simone wrote an online essay about this trope, and she's become a comic right. writer. Like she, she is, she loves superheroes and she loves comic books, but she hated this. Oh, the, what became uh, like a, a fallback story yeah. um, it was for... a, it was a it was a very bad trope in the 90s like yeah the the 80s it wasn't quite as bad but then once you got into the 90s and early 2000s i mean it was just it permeated everything it was really ugly for a while um, and and uh i really enjoy gail simone's uh comic book writing and the stories that she's told but in comic book circles she may be like her her use of the or invention of the term uh fridging may be what she's most well known for actually yeah, yeah. To the point where it's 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 beyond her at this point. Like people use that term having no idea yeah. who created I've, it. I've edited you know? some uh, essay collections on uh, superheroes. And I can't remember it right now, but I know the term fridging was in the title of one of the essays <laughs> that, that I edited uh, from an academic writing about this, you know, the, the, the superhero genre. And that was, you know, it, it's it's reached that level of, you know, uh, um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It's permeated that that deep into the discussion of comic books um, that it's you know used in the title of an essay. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing that's maybe worth pointing out because you did like Joseph, you introduced this talking about this Spider-Man, uh, the death of Gwen Stacy being a a fridging incident. Um, I think one thing that is maybe worth pointing out though is like the major criticisms of fridging. Don't they? tend to stem from the presence of the female character solely being so she can die to motivate the male character. Whereas Gwen Stacy had a long running like character. Yeah, she had dozens and dozens of issues. Yeah. Which is not, not the standard fridging narrative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think what what we're saying is like, it it leads it like readers who read this and love this and become writers in the future and end up falling back on it. And it becomes a trope afterwards. Mm hmm. Basically, the earlier it happens to a character, the more likely it's fridging. <laughs> yeah, like that. that um, I remember reading that Kyle Rayner issue, uh, and I'm like, I don't like. I remember thinking, is this his girlfriend? Because there had been so little introduced about right, her. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't sure who it was that had just been killed. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm sure. I, I think that one came out in the early '90s, so it's probably a teenager, you know, young teenager reading that and not really, you know, following everything that was going on. But that's how little character development she had had. Gwen Stacy. That was a fully developed character um, when when uh, this happened, like uh, like all these stories that are covered in Spider-Man Blue were um, several years before her death. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, this this was such a pivot point for comics that uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but there was a uh, uh, the 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 publisher that was publishing uh, Marvel Comics in it's either Mexico or somewhere in South America. But in that in that area um they uh when they got the issue where gwen stacy died they refused to publish it and instead went rogue and started making their own spider-man comics with gwen stacy alive and well in them um and those issues went on for like 60 or 70 issues before they finally uh let it happen and uh and uh went back to to republishing um old Marvel books. And to this day, uh, in that particular country, I think it is Mexico. Uh, it was Mexico. I've seen this floating around recently. Yeah. Yeah. In, in Mexico, uh, they, uh, they are still to this day, they are still about five years behind on publishing, uh, Spider-Man comics because they've never caught up <laughs> after losing those, uh, those like 70 months. Yeah. I've just seen this and I'm so curious, like, oh, cause usually they just translate what's being sent from the Marvel offices. So I'm very curious right. about what was happening. Like, did they just hire another artist uh, and writer to make new stories? Uh, yeah. I, yeah. No, they did. Yeah. Yeah. They um, absolutely did. And they traced a lot of panels and things like that. And then like drew their own characters inside the tracing, you know, I inserted Gwen um, Stacy where, right. <laughs> you know, where yeah. she wasn't. Right, right, right. And it was it was crazy stuff too. Like it was like Spider-Man fighting dinosaurs and like they just went nuts with it because <laughs> like they just didn't uh, you know, it was they were like, "Ah, we're going full on rogue, so let's do whatever we want. As long as Gwen Stacy's alive, it's fine." <laughs> that, oh, I, I hope those get collected at some point. Uh, I would love to read oh, they've those. They've got both to be. As, 
as a fan of Spider-Man and also um, like an academic who looks at the comic book industry, that really is something I want to get my hands on. Oh <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. This weird subset of, uh, of Spider-Man comics. I think it's, I think it's essentially at this point, I think it's the Holy grail of like Spider-Man uh, readers, you know, it's, oh, we all want to read that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just such a weird thing that none of us really knew about until recently. Like it's, uh, it's crazy. Uh, so anyway, um, um, one thing I want to talk about with Spider-Man Blue and the fact that this was a miniseries, I think it, telling this story and really dwelling on Peter's grief works better in the miniseries than it would would in the monthly comic, in like the main through line of Spider-Man comics that are just constantly churning and go- going on to the next story. Oh yeah, um, I think seeing a pause for grief would get very old for a reader uh, in in the monthly setting, but the space that's allowed to breathe in the miniseries and the expectation that this is going to be a six issue story uh, and that it's, it's going to be focused on this. It allows um, a different kind of story to be told and different expectations are set up for the reader that, um, that makes this satisfying in this form, but it would be uh, unsatisfying. And I think you'd probably get some outcry from fans if this was what was happening in the monthly, in a monthly Oh, for title. sure. Yeah. I just think it's really interesting how, uh, even though it's the same medium of comic books and the same character of Spider-Man, and these are creators who work in the comic book industry, uh, just that little shift of expectations allows such a different kind of story to be Absolutely. told. Absolutely, and and then it becomes, uh, you know, one of those uh, uh, timeless stories that you can, you, you know, give to people and 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 uh, read whenever you want because it's it doesn't matter where you're reading it in the uh, continuity of Spider-Man. You know, it's it's meant to exist outside of it yeah and there's um like famously like i I think you kind of hinted at this earlier like dc has lots of um what are they called their evergreen graphic novels where it's collections of stories that they can just always have on the bookstore shelf and it's always going to be a good grab and marvel um for at least for a good chunk of like the 90s and 2000s they had a larger market share of the month to month comic book buying pro- um the product but they could not put out a an evergreen graphic novel that was just always going to be on the bookstore shelf right. uh you know the iconic batman story or just a great six issue run of superman those are there on comic book store shelves and watchman is is the most famous of these where it's just all you'll never not see watchman um in in a comic book fan's house on their own bookshelf or in a comic book store uh you're gonna find watchman around uh and marvel for whatever reason um has struggled to create those kinds of stories that like you said are timeless that aren't uh, so connected into the continuity and that and that greater connection to continuity i think does drive their greater monthly month to month to month sales because fans want to see what happens mm-hmm. next and they go back and they go back um but i think it's there's an untapped market for that more casual person who just wants a great spider-man story or a great um captain america story and bookstores aren't quite sure what to give yeah. them <laughs> or what what to stock on there yeah story. because you have like famous spider-man stories like the night gwen stacy died or like craven's last hunt i sometimes hear people say that craven's last hunt like they you know they'll they'll point to that as like oh yeah that's like that's like the spider-man story like that's that's the one that is like the most important most best greatest spider-man story ever and that's the one that you should read and it is completely inaccessible to anyone who doesn't know like tons and tons and tons about spider-man for the you know okay specifically because like spider-man is barely in the damn thing (laughs) well i was gonna say i as a huge spider-man fan always heard about how great craven's last hunt was and in the late 90s early 2000s marvel actually did start putting out better collections of earlier stuff like when i was in in the like early 90s there was it was such a crapshoot to try and find old stories that you saw referenced or or that you were told they were great because you you had to basically find the actual back issues um but marvel started put out some collections of these and i saw i think in the early 2000s craven's last hunt like i have always heard that is so good and i've never read it and i grabbed it and I know, you know, I, I was fairly well-versed in all the villains, in all, you know, all the side characters. So and even I. then, I was like, I don't know what's going on because it was so entrenched in the previous 20 issues before yes. Craven's Last Hunt. It's not just you need to know the characters. It's you need to know 
what the emotional beats and the interactions that have been happening for 20 issues are, which is a completely valid form of storytelling, yeah. right? Like I'm not trying to knock that style of storytelling. I think it's actually really impressive when you can pull that off successfully with multiple artists and writers coming and going. And I don't know how hard the editors had to be working to keep everything in place for this story to end up making sense. But then by itself, this Craven's Last Hunt, these, I think it was like six issues or, you know, five issues or whatever it was. Even then, like, I, even with all my knowledge of it, without those 20 issues right before it, it didn't make a whole lot no, of sense. No, no. I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> you, you, you can't make heads or tails of it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a really terrible story to hand to just like a random Spider-Man fan. It's, it's awful for that. Um, and, you know, and, and not for nothing, but uh, it's not even like Spider-Man's barely in it. It's, it's a Craven story. It's not a Spider-Man story. Um, let's, you know, <laughs> let's call a spade a spade. <laughs> um, I, I think it is also worth noting, uh, as he is the, the final villain that shows up in Spider-Man Blue, yes. um, Craven the Hunter is one of those names that you forget doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. When when you're a comic book fan and you're like, oh, it's Craven the Hunter. He's showing up. Oh, he's got his crazy lion costume and he's obsessed with hunting the greatest prey, which in his mind is Spider-Man. But then you step back as someone who is being introduced to these characters for the first time. You're like, why is his name Craven? <laughs> that means cowardly. <laughs> like, why is he cowardly the hunter? <laughs> that is very strange. Wow. But it, but it just like you kind of forget when you become immersed in these things that there are so like I remember giving my wife who is not well versed in Spider-Man like she never read any I gave her Spider-Man Blue fairly early on but I did uh, some of that scaffolding beforehand of like explaining okay Gwen Stacy was this character this uh, you know and I told her like she died uh, Spider-Man's married to Mary Jane in the comics now but I think you're gonna like this this comic and she did enjoy it but I I'm sure uh, like we said at the beginning it's just gonna be such a different experience depending who the audience is. Yeah, that's absolutely. This up. Absolutely. Um, I, but I, you know, but, but, oh man, Craven the Hunter. I haven't talked about that in a while. <laughs> but I do think that the reason why Craven the Hunter is sort of like the, the, the final boss in this, uh, in the storyline is, is, uh, you know, because of uh, Craven's Last Hunt. I mean, I think, I think that story had become so iconic that he had, sort of uh, become the de facto like arch nemesis of Spider-Man, you know, um, that isn't the Green Goblin. And uh, remind me, yeah, at, the, at this point in 2000, when, when Spider-Man Blue was coming out, they had not yet resurrected Norma, Norman Osborn, or had they? Ooh, that's I a good question. When, I don't... When exactly got resurrected. Because Yeah, was I don't think they had yet. I don't think that had happened yet. Because that happened... That happened like not too long before Civil War. Um, so it might have, if it did happen, it just happened. Which it had just happened. Like 2006 yeah. or seven. Yeah. So it might have been in the works or something along those lines. But um, like, again, from films and from the, the cartoon, Norman Osborn is kind of like the Lex Luthor to Spider Man. But for comic book fans, he was around for the first five five maybe right. 10 years of spider-man but then he was gone for 20 years and like uh gwen stacy was there for the first five ten years and then uh spider-man married mary jane and if you started reading spider-man comics in the in the you know 90s right. it's like oh this this is his wife <laughs> you know this is just you know this is the love of his life and uh i i it's just interesting with uh how how interconnected all these different aspects of yeah. reader expectation as they pick up Spider-Man Blue is going to flavor uh, their reaction. You know, it really uh, is interesting. You can kind novel. of break down who who uh, Peter's sort of nemesis is by the decade. Like the the 60s, uh, less so. Like, I mean, in the 60s, I would basically say it was J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> um, yes. Was, and, and was this crazy nemesis. rotating rogues gallery of animals, right? Yeah. Like, kind of right. In here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then by the 70s, you had Norman Osborn was definitely like his nemesis. Like that was like the big, the big, big guy um, that he had to get rid of. The Green Goblin, you know, specifically and all the variations thereof, you know, Harry Osborn, Norman Osborn, whatever. By the time you got to the 80s, it was strictly crazy. Craven the Hunter because of uh, Craven's Last Hunt and the stories that led to it. Uh, the 90s, it was Venom and Carnage. Venom, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then 2000, like early 2000s, it started becoming, uh, it was uh, Morlin or more, more, is that his name? Morlin? Oh, the J. Michael Straczynski. Uh, yeah. The kind of totem character. Like yeah, the, the idea that there was 
a spider totem right. that needed to consume Peter Parker's powers, right. basically. Uh, and now, currently, it's probably Dr. Octopus, right? Like, that's kind of become his yeah. de facto nemesis now by the uh, late uh, 2000s to, like, current. I mean, right now, I don't think he really has oh. one currently, but. I mean, there's that period when Norman Osborn is brought back, probably around 2007 or so, where they really made him like the Lex Luthor of the Marvel universe. Yes, but he was like a Marvel um, he villain. Spider Man. Yeah, he was a yeah, Marvel was villain, not a not a Spider Man yeah. villain. So yeah, um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was interesting. But yeah, that that's really interesting that you can just sort of like siphon off like decades with like who his main nemesis is. That's interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, this but this uh, Spider Man Blue is just. I mean, it's it's so good and. Um, you know, the thing that we haven't talked about yet is uh, Tim Sale, who uh, I think this is the best work of his career, is this story. Um, I think this is Tim, Tim Sale working at the absolute top of his game. And like, I love his Batman stuff and uh, Superman for all seasons. I love those stories. Uh, and I love all the other color books in this. But this is the one that really stands out because it's so unlike Tim Sale. Right. Tim Sale loves to work in shadows and heavy inks. And you never get to see Tim Sale do light, uh, light inks and, and, uh, very color poppy, colorful artwork. That's not his thing. I mean, for, for one thing, the man is colorblind. Um, so that's, that's a, that's, that's a big reason why most of his artwork looks the way that it does. Uh, but then with this, like he allowed them to really, he wanted this to feel like pop art. Like that's what he wanted this whole thing to feel like. And it is so. It feels a lot like um, Patrick Nagel art yes. in this one. Yes. If, uh, particularly the covers. Yes. I, I, I think this must have been some deliberate homages to Patrick Nagel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm this. sure. But it's so interesting to see. Um, the storytelling mm-hmm. with that style. Of yes. Art, right. Cause that's, that's usually like pop art and Patrick Nagel. That's usually like, here's a print. Right. Uh, and, and to see this uh, panel to panel storytelling with that style, it's so different than other comic books that you mm-hmm. find. And, and all of the, uh, you know, quote unquote, like uh, current day, uh, scenes are all done in uh, in in blue tones, like different variations of blue, and it's all blue and shadow, and so like that looks like typical Tim Sale stuff. And then all of the flashbacks are full full color, like poppy uh, artwork with like very light inks, and is they're all meant to be this fascinating uh, like throwback, like to that those sixties that sixties style, while also like updating it to be, you know, uh, to work for like modern storytelling. And it's just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And hands down the best work of his career. And, and particularly when he's drawing um, Gwen Stacy or or Mary Jane, like just the color work that's being done. I, I got to double check who, who was the colorist on this. Um, it's, it's, uh, it stands out. Uh, the, like you just get a different palette with the panels, uh, you know, with, with those characters in it because um, this, this story is as much, about Gwen Stacy and, and um, w- you know, why she's so important to the Spider-Man mythology as it is about Peter Parker. Right. Uh, Steve Bucoletto was yeah. the uh, colorist. Yeah. Great job on Tim sales art. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that was literally um, the next thing I wanted to touch on was, was um, this, the art in this just doesn't feel like other comics um and tim sale and jeff Loeb they collaborate and i i think i maybe because of that i associate tim tim sales art with miniseries and not with the the main line of these characters and there's kind of a it ends up and some of this may be with association and not anything inherent to the to the art i don't know but it ends up having a, a more of a timeless feel to it uh for me yeah. when i see tim sales art He's also a notoriously slow artist, yes. um, so he tends to work better in uh, miniseries than on any ongoing books. So you'll you'll tend you'll tend to see him more as like a variant cover artist or that sort of thing, and then he does these miniseries. Well, and also uh, his art is so distinctive; it would be really hard to sub in another artist in a story. Which on main like Batman, mm-hmm. Spider Man titles, if an artist is getting behind, you know, you may have issues one, two, and three of a storyline are by one artist, and then there's a fill in artist for uh, issue number four. I don't know that you could do that with Tim Sale's art and have it feel in any no. way cohesive. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 because the only artist that you could do that with would be like 
Tim Sale swapping with Mike Mignola, you know, yeah. like that. The, the, that's like the only way or you can make that work in any fashion, like that. But yeah, uh, man, I now I want to see Tim Sale draw a Hellboy book. Wow. <laughs> oh, but oh, his art is special. But it, it, yeah. if you're thinking like comic book art, yeah, you're probably not in, in the right vein for uh, what's present here in Spider Man Blue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it Absolutely. is comic book art. You get bright colors, you get a lot of that, but there's just something very special about his style, and particularly his style for um, these kind of collaborations that he does with Tim Sale that are meant to be both with Batman, Superman, the ones you mentioned, and these color books from Marvel. They're meant to be kind of like timeless uh, explorations of key moments in these characters, mm-hmm. and and Tim Sale, uh, you know, manages that. Wait, wait, it's, it feels a bit contradictory to say timeless about a key yeah. moment, but somehow it works. <laughs> like it's, it is hooked into mm-hmm. continuity, but it's not. I don't know how they yeah. do it, but they they manage the trick very well. Now that you know, they had a trilogy because they they did uh, Daredevil, Hulk, and Spider Man. That was the original trilogy, and then uh, they came back years and years later. I mean, like fifteen years later, and did Captain America White. Um, and I've just, I, now that they've done a fourth one, I just, I want them to do two more. I want them to do fantastic four and X-Men really badly. Oh, fantastic four would be so good with Tim sales art. Yes. Yeah, I know. Oh, that is a perfect pairing. Like, yeah. I, I also like, I, 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 he's passed on, but I always wanted a Darwin cook fantastic four. Yes. It's just something about his, his art style would have been perfect, but Tim sale would also be so great yes. for fantastic four and fantastic four is another, is another, uh, a book that notoriously does not have a good story that you can just hand somebody and say, read this, you know, it's yeah, all, it's like, well, there, there's these good three issues, but then they really connect to 18 other issues. Right. That come before uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're all huge, massive runs and that's it. Yeah. Um, so you need to read the Stanley Jack Kirby. That's a hundred and four issues uh right. then you need to read the john Byrne. that's 100 issues <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly oh yeah that would be great I, I hope they do do that uh oh especially the fantastic four one and i'm saying that as someone who like x-men was my first love in comics that's what got mm-hmm. me hooked into superhero comics but the thought of a a lobe sale fantastic four is really an enticing one yeah there is there's a little hint of it in uh in in daredevil yellow because the fantastic four have a cameo in that that series um and it is just it is it's gorgeous it 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 really oh, I, did you find it i haven't read that in years i may have to go pull it up on my off my shelf just to see tim sale drawing those characters yeah. it just seems like a match that should happen yeah oh absolutely it's uh it's fantastic all right uh i did want to touch real quick before we wrap up uh, what exactly do you think uh besides uh, the historical significance of gwen stacy what do we get from her as a character in this, I think there's some good moments where you see that she is more aware of like Peter Parker's specialness than anyone else. Like she, she gives a few lines to, to flash of, you know, and I quoted a couple of those directly, but what else do we get about Gwen Stacy specifically? Do you think? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that the, the, the thing about, about Gwen Stacy just in general and, and, and the thing that this story is doing, like, I don't, I don't know that this story is necessarily trying to, give Gwen an arc or give her a thing in this. It's more about uh, Peter's memory of Gwen Mm -hmm. and explaining to readers what made her so important to Peter. Um, Not just like personally, but also in like the grand scheme of his life. And I think that that, that that's the thing is like, this is, ultimately a a a peter parker spider-man story like this is this is about him and about him dealing with grief and about you know his memories of this woman who changed his life and uh i so i don't i don't think that it's necessarily a criticism to uh look at this and say like oh this story about gwen stacy doesn't you know gwen doesn't have like an arc Mm -hmm. or anything like that because i think ultimately like her arc was cut short like that's kind of her her legacy as a character until very recently um thank thankfully uh but it's you know it's it's difficult to say like what this does for gwen stacy other than make people remember her um you know Uh 
I do think we get some contrast with Mary Jane, which is always defining her by what she's not. But they, those are two very different women in Peter's life in this, yeah. this miniseries. Uh, Mary Jane is much more of the party girl, which is not to say that Gwen Stacy's not a party girl. Like there's those shots of them dancing and having fun together. Absolutely. But you do get a sense that Gwen Stacy is a little more studious. Yeah. <laughs> um, she knows when to uh, stop. She knows when it's appropriate to stop partying. You know, yes, and and you don't get that sense from Mary Jane. Like life is a no. party for Mary Jane, and parties are a nice part of life for Gwen Stacy, right? Uh, in there, so so I, I think there's some revelations in there, but no, I, I agree with you. She's she doesn't have a character arc where she's transforming. Um, it is interesting in this story about, uh, like we said, it's, it's Peter Parker's grief about the loss of Gwen Stacy. Um, this isn't about their romance together, really. <laughs> like, yes, in the last panel, she says, will you be my Valentine and a kiss? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not about their time together as boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, and it's not re- like we, we don't see her death. We know the death is something that's overhanging the, you know, Peter's mood and, and the whole discussion, you know, that that is hinted at in the opening panels when Spider-Man drops a rose off on the bridge. And then we get it explicitly in the end when he says, I'm married now, I've moved on, but I need to talk to you on Valentine's Day. Um because because of your death and, and the loss uh but like if you were thinking someone was going to tell uh a miniseries about peter parker and gwen stacy you'd think it would be either their time together or <laughs> when she died and they managed to tell this very moving story that omits a lot of that yeah yeah absolutely um it's it's just really really well done i mean i think that this might be the best thing jeff Loeb's ever written as well like this collectively i i this is definitely my favorite thing uh from both of them yeah uh, both uh, i mean and, and i can point to works i love from both of them but i think this one is a little more special yeah yeah for sure all right well do you have any final thoughts on spider-man blue uh no i mean it's just it's my favorite spider-man story so <laughs> there you go i'm glad we could have you on to talk about it uh, and i think that's going to wrap up this episode listeners thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we would like to thank nick english who designed our logo and scott tofty who composed our theme music if you enjoyed this episode you might want to go check out episode number uh 164 when we talked about mary jane from the story spider-man loves mary jane or episode number 28 when we talked about peter parker from amazing Sp- uh, fantasy number 15 his actual origin issue you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com we're also on twitter we're at protagonist pod and at jay dorowski and our producer andrew is at dis minute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast scott if anyone's interested in hearing you talk about spider-man in more depth where could they go uh, you'll want to go to duelinggenre.com or the podcast app of your choice and search for Spider-Man Minute. Uh, and then you can hear myself and my co-host Zach Luna talk about uh, Spider-Man uh, every day. <laughs> At this point, you have tackled the uh, first Tobey Maguire and the second Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films, correct? Going yes, we are. We are ramping up to do the third one. And uh, any word on on a Venom uh, movie by minute in the future? Uh, when you get there? <laughs> no, we uh, we did an April Fool's episode uh, <laughs> where we where we did an, a minute of, of, of Venom minute um, as an April Fool's joke. But uh, no, we 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 are strictly sticking to uh, the the proper Spider Man films. Ah, it may be a good call. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the protagonist. Nah, let me give another run at that.